without more taking more time, I I would like to to ask Peter to to proceed with the presentation of the book. Well, thank you very much, Xavier. Um, I, I brought a copy of the book just to sort of give you an idea that it's not a huge volume. Uh, it is, it's quite dense, but uh, it's, it's a manageable sort of quantity. Um, and I was, I was editing rather than, I wasn't one of the contributors. I did help a bit with the writing of some of the chapters, but I primarily wrote, I, I was editing the whole thing while I was at Oxford. And it was a great place to do it, uh, because in Oxford, I already, before the book arose, I had already encountered one or two professors who just didn't agree with what the EU was doing in its climate policy. And, you know, basically, I wanted to explain to them, but they didn't have time to listen. And I felt some frustration that, you know, we were never adequately understood. Uh, our reasoning of why we didn't do the theoretically optimal so often. Um, and, and the book was a way for me of ensuring that it was written down somewhere and that if they took the trouble to read it or more likely their students might read it and tell them uh, a bit of the reasoning why the Commission d does things. Um, and this discussion today, I mean, I'm going to talk about the book, but the book is a pretext really to talk about EU climate policy what we've done so far, how it has evolved over time. Um, so, you know, take it as a pretext and keep your questions and do have questions at the very end. And like any, like any book, it's, it's, um, it's almost out of date when it gets published, uh, not just because I'm no longer at Oxford as I was when I wrote the back cover, um, but it's particularly something like the Volkswagen scandal has arisen. Uh, since this book was finalized and of course uh, the implications of that aren't fully known uh, but perhaps it would have led me to be more qualified in my singing the or praising the success uh, of the CO2 standards for cars for instance uh, which is one of the instruments we've got we have and we do believe it's been successful but you know obviously I wouldn't say so with quite the same um, degree of certainty as I would have done a few months ago because we now are waiting to hear uh, more from one of the biggest car companies perhaps the biggest in Europe so let's go and have a have a look at the book just it's actually um, it's a state of play a book it, in that it documents m the vast majority of the legislation that is climate related so we make no apology for going into the energy sphere and talking about renewable energy and energy efficiency, although they are, if you like, the, the subject of another uh, department in the Commission. The energy department isn't the climate department, but there's an enormous relevance. Everyone understands that, and we talk about both. Um, but So it, it, it does the cataloguing of what we do, um, and it very often we give the sources for you to find out so much more if you're so inclined. It was written by a, in fact, Joss and I were the editors and we've written a couple of chapters, but there are a total of 10 contributors. And what's particular about all 10 is that they've all worked in the European Commission. They're, they're practitioners like people like myself and Joss who've worked on the policy making. So I think it's got it that input that is a perspective which perhaps uh, isn't the one you get in theoretical manuals. 
it's very much a case, as it says in that third bullet, of what is possible rather than what is optimal. Remembering, of course, that what is possible changes over time, because that is a, a, another theme. This is a graph you've probably seen already. It's been used already by, uh, in a number of commissioned publications, but it essentially shows that our track record is quite good. Indeed, I would even say very good. Um, but you can have a long, a long discussion about a graph like this. The way this graph is calculated is the way that the Kyoto Protocol calculates emissions, that is to say direct emissions. Um, so it does not take a consumption-based approach to emissions. Uh, and there are reasons which perhaps we explain more in the book uh, why we stuck to the Kyoto methodology, which is also that of the IPCC, um, and it is very much the uh, more feasible method by which to measure emissions. And of course, the proviso for this to work, the Kyoto methodology to work, is that everybody's involved in policy making across the globe. Uh, the, the advocates of consumption-based accounting assume that there is part of the world that's outside the regime and part of the world that's inside and what's consumed by those inside a regime should be accountable for the emissions also embedded in products. But from the moment that everybody's involved in a regime, the imperative to have a consumption-based approach or to tax at the border or whatever disappears because if everyone is doing imposing carbon constraint in their own jurisdiction, the competitive distortion is, is much the less. Anyway, this is using Kyoto methodology. It shows that the red line is our GDP, which you can see the economic crisis. Um, and of course, this is EU aggregate. It doesn't show the trauma that some member states had in comparison perhaps to others. Uh, but emissions, you can see the dip in emissions as well as a result of the economic crisis. But the trend line is very much consistently downwards. And I think that decoupling is one of the big stories we're proud of. The population, just for, for the sort of memory, is the black line. We have a rising population in the EU, very slowly rising, and that's likely to continue. Um, and notwithstanding that, indeed, the green line shows that our energy consumption has also peaked, which is interesting. Of course, we'll have to see where that goes over time, but um, you can say it's a a case of a mature economy that is very much committed to putting in place climate measures. One of the discussions is how exactly emissions have fallen, you know, whether it is just the economic crisis. This is a map that's a, a graph that's in the book. It's a bit difficult to explain simply, but the red is the economic growth in the period or the de decline of economic growth in the second period. The, the two bars, one stands for the period 2005-2008 and the other one 2008-2012, which was the Kyoto commitment period. But you can see economic growth rose in one case, fell in the other. Population growth in both scenarios increased about the same, that's the light blue. But what in fact is driving the reduction of emissions in the EU is energy intensively per unit of GDP and carbon intensity of energy. Those we're making progress on, and that is, if you like, the underlying story that we're making um, an impact, if you like, by all the measures we apply. 
Now, there's many things to say, uh, but the book essentially talks about policy making um, and the lessons that we've learned along the way. Um, and of course, policy making is never simple, it's never done in a vacuum, there's always existing policies before you even start. Um, and there's interactions between policies. And one thinks most notably of the interaction perhaps between the emissions trading scheme on the one hand and the renewable energy targets, uh, which we have also had through to, and have till 2020. There's been a lot of debate about that um, in academic circles as to whether or not they're complementary. Um, in any case, the EU has gone the road down the road of having multiple targets and it's we've made it work. Uh, now em emissions trading has been through troubles which we can talk about a bit later and I might say a word about but basically interaction is as constant in policy making. And for those of you who might really be interested in emissions trading what was so remarkable about emissions trading and made it easier to put in place was the fact that there wasn't any other emissions trading of any scale in the EU before that. Um, there were two member states that had trading schemes, the UK and Denmark, but they had only just begun and they quickly folded their schemes into the EU scheme. But when I went on to move on to work on energy, on renewable energy, it was not the case that no member state had renewable energy policies. There was an existing whole catalogue of, of measures that had been in place that were put in place and managed by the member states. So building a European renewable energy strategy had to start from that very different starting point. But that's a sort of a, a slightly different topic. So I call policy-making toolboxes are like ecosystems. We have a whole selection of policies detailed in the book. Some of them are strong policies, some are weaker. I think I mentioned, I take the case of cars later on, so I won't say more. Now, on the one hand, businesses love stability, but the thrust of this book, the message of it, is that evolution of policy making is a necessary fact. Evol policy evolves. And I said initially, what is possible at one moment is, or, or what is not possible at one moment becomes possible later. And there's plenty of examples in this area of that kind of thing. I'm going to take pallet passenger cars as an example, not because of Volkswagen, which I wasn't aware of. Um, we started in 96 with voluntary agreements for passenger cars and they failed to deliver. So we discontinued the voluntary agreements and we introduced mandatory standards instead. Legally, the directive was adopted in 2009, but the negotiations had preceded that slightly, you know, so everyone knew mandatory standards were coming. And since 2007, the motor industry, has the car manufacturers in Europe, have been complying with targets. And, you know, I would say there's, there's a lesson there. Mandatory works better than voluntary. We're, we're not just going on car engine technology, we're also looking at fuel quality, where there is a directive to reducing the carbon content of fuel by 2020. And we've got the Renewable Energy Directive's transport target of 10% by 2020. And this is a soft measure, CO2 labeling for cars. You know it's done, because you see the adverts, how much impact does that have on consumers' choices? I'm not sure that it's very easy to quantify, but it's there. It's a sort of measure that might, the consumer's given it, but he doesn't have to act on it. Whereas other things are 
more mandatory and therefore, you know, they, they are. that's why I say there's an ecosystem and it's a varying strengths. But the policy toolbox, if you look at road transport, is quite complex. And this is discounting things like Euro vignette and things which are more infrastructure related at the moment, but, you know, and excise duties which are more revenue raising and so on. So, throughout the last 15 years, there's been a bit of a a, a discussion as to whether we should provide predictability for businesses. They've always argued they want predictability. Uh, and of course they need it because they need to make investments. But, and they, but also we have to encompass learning into this policy-making process. And if you take the emissions trading scheme as a case in point, that was a, a, a rather novel instrument but it was constructed upon the premise that the first period of three years that lasted from 2005 to seven was a learning phase. We called it the pilot phase and things. And subsequently, in the subsequent phases, it's got better. We have learned, and indeed the member states have learned sufficiently so that things that were not possible at the beginning, like high percentages of auctioning of allowances, became possible over time. And we're still revising the ETS and there's a proposal right now in the Parliament and Council that's just beginning the legislative journey, but it is to further strengthen the scheme as of 2020. What we've learned, this is the slide I made since the Volkswagen case arose, of course, <laughs> uh, or I changed, but MRV, the monitoring, reporting, and verification is very important. Um, and the, we found that in emissions trading, one of the problems with the first commitment period or the first pilot phase was we over-allocated. The truth was we didn't know what the emissions of the companies were who were covered by the scheme. The companies might have known themselves, but they didn't choose to disclose that. So it was only after the first year of the actual implementation of the scheme in 2005 that we got the first verified reports, first more reliable set of data, at which point it became apparent there were too many allowances and the price fell very much in that first period. So without MRV, you're feeling in the dark. Interestingly, when we come to regulate maritime emissions about a year or two ago, we've just gone for MRV obligations for big ships coming in and out of EU ports. We need that data set first, and then we can decide which policy we should choose. So, of course, it's an obvious thing to say that effective policies have to be adequately enforced. That, I think, is a story that's still evolving. But at the EU level, we don't have environmental inspectors. We have nuclear safety inspectors under the Euratom Treaty, but the Treaty of Rome doesn't give us armies of inspectors. Um, the only sorts of inspectors I'm aware of in the EU are the OLAF, which is fraud against the EU budget. Those, and, and the competition, of course, there are investigators there and things like that. But on the environment side, we rely on member states and their own mechanisms for enforcement. But one of the applicable lessons of all of our learning of the last 15 years is that in Paris now, we're insisting that there are strong rules of transparency and accountability on, on the parties to the, to the convention. 
because all of these pledges being made are just nice words unless we can be sure that they're actually being followed up on the ground. So that's why the EU is particularly emphasizing accountability, transparency, and of course the legal nature of the agreement that is going to be discussed, agreed. Sorry, apart from my misspelling of the first technical, uh, that was too technical a word, obviously. Um, you know what, <coughs> my experience of this sort of area is that it gets, there are some <coughs> technical details which are really quite complex. Registry, security, we had hackers, we had <coughs> phishing attacks, we had uh, people disclosing passwords over, you know, there's the, the usual sort of types of fraud that they that are occurring in the internet space. We had that in the registry and some allowances were stolen from one account to another through the use of someone's password. Um, but it's very technical understanding that. You need, you need to get the right people to be able to do that sort of robust work. MRV guidelines, it's very technical. The benchmarks for free allocation per industry sector, <coughs> we had to get piles and piles of reports on the methods used in industry for different processes to be able to develop those. And of course, you know, the, I say the indirect land use change, that was biofuels. We basically instigated a biofuels policy that we thought was great until we looked over our shoulder and saw that it was contributing to deforestation in third countries. And that wasn't the idea. And that's why we subsequently tried to, and we did succeed in, in passing a directive on in, indirect land use change that minimized those perverse effects outside the boundaries of our own little scheme. But those are the sorts of complexities that arise and which I'm afraid are just unavoidable. We've definitely concluded that there isn't any single instrument that really is gonna work. We'd love, I mean, the carbon tax was tried, it didn't work. But of course, that remains perhaps the most economy-wide measure you could take. But as it's not a measure that's likely to be adopted in the EU, we've rather gone to different types of instruments in different sectors as a second best. And I think over time, we're ensuring greater coherence between instruments. And to some extent, that's why we say that policymaking is also an example of learning by doing. Um, the emissions trading scheme has recently had added to it the market stability reserve, which actually will serve to not only adjust scarcity in the carbon market in the case of an economic recession, but if, for example, renewable policies were particularly successful, renewable energy promotion policies were particularly successful, one assumes there would be fewer emissions and so the emissions trading scheme would also be tightened up automatically through the market stability reserve mechanism. So it's, the mechanism would adjust whether in response to economic circumstances or policy developments, technological developments, which I think makes it all more coherent. But I don't want to dwell too much on that, but it's a very, um, I think it's, it's a strengthening which I, I would welcome. And 2020 approach uh, in climate targets. You remember there were three, 2020, 2020 in 2020. They all sounded a bit too round and sort of rhyming. Um, we, but we did have a target for energy efficiency, for renewables and for greenhouse gases. We're not replicating the same 
method in 2030. In 2030, there is one target of 40% reductions of greenhouse gases, which will be differentiated per member state for the sectors of their economies that are not covered by the emissions trading scheme. That legal proposal of differentiation is coming next year. Uh, and it will be contentious because it's all political. But we've basically chosen to have that target differentiated per member state, but not to have renewable energy target replicated per member state and not to do so with energy efficiency either. So we're taking a different, in the case of those two, energy efficiency and renewables, we've got EU targets we will strive to reach, but the member states individually won't have their legally binding obligations as they have in 2020 for renewable energy, for example. So the method is changing, but arguably the circumstances are changing. Just look at solar price, the prices of solar panels and wind turbines in the last 10 years. They've come down very appreciably. Again, more details in the book. Um, I think one of the themes of the book is that policymaking, whatever it's done, whatever it is, however it's done, uh, must seek to be as cost-effective as possible. And rather obviously, uh, the more flexibilities you allow within an instrument, the more cost-effective it tends to be. Um, that's the sort of headline statement, but actually where the climate policy has been so successful in the last 15 years and 20 years or so, it's actually largely built on the strength of the economic analysis and impact assessments they've done for every proposal. Uh, and this is a lot of credit to Joss Delbeck, uh, the co-editor but director general of DG Klima, who's got a PhD in economics. And he was, in his earlier life, head of unit of the economic analysis unit of DG Environment, and that's where I first started working for him. And those impact assessments just had to be better. And why did they have to be better? Because environment's always the guy, you know, who other people push away and say, oh, yeah, yeah, but we're in an economic crisis. You're expensive. And we were having to prove that we weren't. <clears throat> if you count co-benefits, we were, we were good and cheaper than the status quo. Now, that's a case you can't just make bold statements. But if you can produce numbers that substantiate that, you're going to have a better case. And I think, to be honest, this, the impact assessment work is still exemplary in, in the climate area of the Commission and in energy. They've actually coordinated and they've been doing it together for many years now. Um, but it's absolutely basic and it's um, cost effectiveness. It has to be enhanced by flexibilities. Let me give an example. You know, the, the, the renewable energy targets I mentioned per member state, they're targets per member state. There's no renewable energy permits that can be traded. So it means that the UK's 15% has to be done by the UK, except with one exception that I'm proud to have contributed to ensuring, which was the cooperative mechanisms within the renewable energy directive. I wanted more, I would admit, but didn't get. But there is in this proposal, if the UK in 2018 finds it's not on track to meet its 15% target, it can go to another government that might be overachieving and there can be an arrangement found which might be cheaper, much cheaper than the UK trying to do those additional percentages themselves. Those sorts of flexibilities are the ones I mean. Or, you know, in the CO2 in car standards, 
there is an overall target of it's 100 and, it's 95 grams in 2020 but it was 130 grams in 2015 there's a slope according to the mass of the car so in practice that it's a flexibility that if you like allows big car manufacturers to squeeze through the same door as the smaller car manufacturers who if you like by the size of the engines uh, are more easily able to produce reduce their emissions per kilometer and there are in the co2 and cars legislation there's super credits for electric cars to give or electric car i think and ultra low emission we call them but if you produce electric cars they count double or triple for a few years and that's an incentive in the biofuels legislation the best biofuels can double count things like that those are the sorts of flexibilities i mean and long transition phase or phase in periods also give industry the time to prepare that reduces the costs so basically if you can tell an industry what it's going to have to do in 2030 today it will cost that industry less than you telling them what they have to do two years before they have to do it those are the sorts of basic ways in which you can try and make your po policies cost effective modeling has its imperfections we have to do it we always do it we're always wrong but these assumptions are always wrong and i take oil prices as a case in point i don't have a graph here but i i you know we were wrong in our predictions of oil prices just like everybody else um but modeling still serves to inform and if you don't have modeling you're really once again jumping into the dark the international context it's running up to paris so I, i've got to say a few words about it um there is in the process between kyoto where we had 39 parties listed in annex b of the kyoto protocol um we're now seeing a hundred over 150 parties have submitted intended nationally determined contributions prior to paris <coughs> so in terms of coverage we go from about 12 percent of global emissions under the second commitment period of the kyoto protocol where the eu is committed second commitment period up to 2020 but the kyoto protocol as it then is is 12 percent of global emissions and the 150 parties who've submitted their indcs already prior to paris is in excess of 90 percent of global emissions so the coverage is definitely extending we've got to be sure though that those policies that are promised in those contributions are followed followed up upon i think it's true to say market-based mechanisms are much better understood now i put governance issues in particular in in highlight because the cdm is a case in point that's a global market-based mechanism but it hasn't worked very well to put it bluntly i think it's 50 cents a ton of carbon abated there's not enough rigor and i think just the abundance of these credits is if you like testimony to the fact that it's not really changing behavior and it's not having the incentive effect it was meant to have and neither is it generating the revenue flow from north to south so governance is it, governance matters and market mechanisms depend on good governance what's so significant about international agreements you know some people are already saying i i saw um recently said that 
it didn't matter what happened in Paris, the world was going green anyway. It was Michael Liebrich of New Energy Finance. He's a great guy. He's so enthusiastic. And it's great that he believes it's going to happen anyway. I'm glad about that. But I think these international agreements are important because they do clearly state the direction of travel for, in, for everybody. And let's face it, if the Kyoto Protocol hadn't had within it an Article 17 that said emissions trading can be done, the EU would probably have never gone down that, gone down that road and been the first major reason, region of the world to implement such a scheme. I've, so I've already said, really, these INDCs, uh, their promises, they're actually commitments to undertake policies. And I think what the EU has learned these last 15, 20 years is that, I put it rather crudely there, there are smart measures and dumb measures um, and unfortunately, the EU isn't just smart. I mean, we've done some things that have not worked as wished. Um, and voluntary agreements, with, in, in the case of the car manufacturers, was a case in point. Um, and we've also over-allocated in the emissions trading scheme, initially, for lack of data. But we're learning from those things. And we're getting smarter by our learning. And the great thing about learning is that it can be shared in that all of these countries that now are making their commitments in Paris and are going to have to put in policies nationally can share in the lessons and the learning that we've been through. And if you like, the book is intended very much to be shared in that context, just as a sort of a handbook, if you like, for how, how to do things that have worked and how not to do things that have not worked. Because I think it's irrefutable. We are making our policies work better over time. Collectively, you know, the 10 authors are in there. I, I estimate they've got over 100 years' worth of policymaking experience in climate policy, collectively. You know, we've all been doing it simultaneously. But, you know, uh, I think it's a book that, if you like, is somewhat unique in that fact. Um, and I hope that the EU has inspired others in making policies in some senses. Uh, you know uh, that emissions trading schemes, cap and trade schemes, are evolving in many parts of the world at the moment. I don't want to list countries particularly, but there's some very big ones in there. Um, they're not doing it because we did it, but they are learning because we are learning, and we're all learning together. This is a slide that just shows the car standards and how the EU's car, actually the EU line is one of the very impossible to see lines. It's, it's basically the lowest and steepest, but it's the lightest gray. It's, it's, it's not so great in black and white either, I might say, but it's there. But basically you can see globally, these are all big economies, all doing car standards similar to ours. There's an immense uh, potential for learning together. And, and I think all the lessons of Volkswagen in the United States and Europe will be socialized, if you like, through these sorts of learning experiences. And if books can help that learning, so much the better. That's all I would say at this stage. I haven't been watching the clock too carefully. I hope I haven't overrun too much. I usually do, but you've got some handouts, but there is a 20% discount if you want the book. I would say I'm not pushing the book because I get money from it. We're not allowed to have money from it. 
the money, if there is any, I think it goes to the publisher, possibly the Office of Publications of the European Union, but it doesn't come to me. So, you know, I'm really indifferent as to whether or not you buy the book, but I hope if you do read it, you enjoy it. Okay, thank you.